Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. All right, so I want to talk, I have a conversation this morning around uh, the power of the stories we tell ourselves. I believe that we all are telling ourselves stories, a story, either the story we grew up with, the story that we've bought into, whether culture has told us about this in society, whether it's been other people that have spoken these stories over us, or whether it's something that we've inherently lived with. And that's what we're gonna talk about. So if you have a Bible, we're gonna look at this one, we're gonna look at two stories today, but we're gonna start with this one story in 2 Samuel chapter nine. So if you are new to the Bible, 2 Samuel's in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's next? Joshua. Judges, Ruth, baby Ruth, um, and um, baby Ruth. <coughs> oh, are they remaking the Goonies? Does anyone know? I heard they're remaking the Goonies. And then it goes 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Anyways, <coughs> if you didn't get that, it was from, it was from the Goonies. Um, anyways, <coughs> we're going to read a story. I'm just going to talk through this story. I'm going to bring up my friend BJ. We're going to talk about shame. And then I'm going to end with another story. Does that sound like fun? All right, cool. So 2 Samuel chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Okay, so we're in the middle of 2 Samuel, and this needs lots of context. So just stay with me as I give you some context. So David is now king. He's established his, uh, his kingdom, and he will continue to establish his kingdom over Israel. He's taking over uh, for Saul, who has been defeated and killed. Saul was the first king of Israel. He was the first anointed king. And there, uh, David was anointed as a younger man, but there was conflict between David and Saul. And Saul was full of pride. Eventually, Saul tried to kill David, and there was a war between Saul and David. But David happened to be best friends with Saul, Saul's son, Jonathan. Okay, so Saul was king. Jonathan was his son. David was anointed king even when, when Saul was already king. And David uh, takes over the empire, I suppose, begins to establish his kingdom. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He, he, he defeats the enemies of Israel at that point, the Philistines. And now David uh, has his empire and he's beginning to establish his kingdom and he'll defeat other enemies. But he says this line, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? The house of Saul so that I could... Um, show kindness for Jonathan's sake. So what we know is that David made an oath to Saul. Check this out. In uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, this is what happens. Saul says this to David before he dies. I wanna just give you some history. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Saul talking to to David, okay? Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home and David went back to his stronghold. So David makes a promise. What would you do if you were a new king and there was another king and a dynasty? Well, in in tribal times, thousands of years ago, you'd wipe out that king's lineage, right? You would kill his sons and his grandsons. But Saul says, don't, don't do that. And David makes a promise. And so David was friends with Jonathan. So what we have in the beginning of 2 Samuel 1 
is David keeping his promise to who was once his enemy? Are you with me? Okay, so that, that's helpful. There's a regime change. Here we go. We're going to keep going. Now, this is what I love. This is why I love this story real quick. This is over 2,000 years old. We're talking like 3,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And this story is so relevant to every one of our lives. I promise you it will all resonate with you when you see it for what it's like. That's why I love the scripture. You can look at a 3,000-year-old text and say, this actually makes sense 20, in the 21st century with everything we have going with us. Here we go, verse two. So he says, Who, who's left? And so now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. Love the name. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is in the house of Machir, son of Emil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Emil. So let me just give you some context real quick before we keep going. David wants to show favor on the household of Saul to keep his promise. So he, he, he calls a servant that once served in Saul's household. And David says, is there anyone left? And he says, there's a son of Jonathan who was David's once, at one point, his best friend, but he's lame in both feet. Now in the ancient Near East culture, what you need to know about this is it has significant implications. To be lame in both feet meant that he was physically disabled and impaired. We get that. But in, in ancient context, this meant that there was a supernatural punishment on his life. It was seen as though he deserved that physical condition, that God, in fact, was cursing him. So you could say his physical condition was seen by his social um, community as spiritual, spiritually cursed. So this man, whoever he is, is spiritually cursed by God. It's divine punishment. It has to do with either he sinned in his life or his family sinned. And that's why he's walking around with lame feet. So he's got a physical impairment. He's spiritually cursed, but also in uh, ancient Near East cultures, if you were part of the royal family and had a physical condition that made you disabled, you were unworthy of being king. Even if it was your right, because of that physical condition, it says, it says you were unfit to be in leadership. You were unfit to be raised up in the household of a king and to experience the social things that came with that, you were marked as a sinner uh, and you were seen as unworthy. Are you with me? So that's just in a couple of verses in 2 Samuel. It says that he lives in Lodeber. Lodeber is uh, translated in Hebrew to mean no pasture. In other words, it's the desert. He lives where you can't grow livestock. And if you're a part of the royal family, you live near Jerusalem. And what we have is this man who was, whose grandfather is dead. His kingdom is forgotten. He's physically impaired. He's spiritually cursed. He's socially unworthy. And he's living in the desert far away from his hometown. Are you with me? Can we get a little bit of his story in that verse? Yes. And then it, says, it goes on. And it says, um, verse 6, when Mephibosheth is the name. This is a good name to, if you're looking for a name to name your son. Mephibosheth. <laughs> just 
what would the nickname be? I'm just curious, like, come here, Mephibi, or <laughs> Mephibosheth rounds and get over here. <laughs> Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. He says, at your service, he replied. So we, we find out who he is. His name's Mephibosheth. I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. I want you to think about the stories we tell ourselves. Were there ever moments in your life, days in your history, that you remember like no other day? Where you could say, that was the day that I started carrying this part of my story. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those moments in your life that mark the rest of your life. So 2 Samuel chapter 4, we read about Mephibosheth and what happened to him. It says in verse 4, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about his grandfather's death, Saul, and Jonathan's death, his father, came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. As she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. What was his childhood like? What was Mephibosheth's child like? childhood like? The day that his dad died, the day that his grandfather died, the day that his tribe lost and his kingdom was defeated, his inheritance was squandered and lost, the day he became a refugee and fled for his life was also the day he became physically disabled. What about you? What are those days like? The day your son got sick, the day you were bullied in high school, the day your dad left your mom, the day your mom died, the day you were given that diagnosis. Do you know the stories in your life that day? This is Mephibosheth's day, the day he becomes marked by the shame of his story. But we can't, we can't even understand it. We can't even get into the head, even as we read this one guy's story. We can't even peer into his soul. He'll reveal something to us in just a moment. But I just want you to sit with this for a moment in your own story. There are days that, that define our existence where the story of our life become known by everyone else. The story continues. That's who he is, Mephibosheth. He says, King David says to him, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and, I will always, uh, and you will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth, physically impaired, spiritually cursed, socially unworthy. He's restored his identity. His identity is restored. His inheritance is restored. He is offered a place at the king's table, which means he's worthy of being the son of a king. In a moment, he's just given, everything's given back to him, a gift, grace, kindness. The story is being rewritten. God is showing favor on him. God is restoring what was lost. God is renewing him. And I want you to see his response because this is what happens to most of us when we're show kindness and grace from God. He says, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What is your servant? Who am I? Who am I? That you would notice a dead dog 
like me. Brothers and sisters, we've been talking about shame for quite some time over the last series, but this is shame manifested. This is this place where unworthiness begins to creep in, where we peer into the soul of Mephibosheth and realize that it wasn't just his physical condition. It wasn't just him embodying the spiritual curse because David represented God in Israel. And so he's showing Mephibosheth that spiritually he's being restored to God. That's what the king represents. He's socially being restored um, to his community, being seen as worthy to sit at the king's table. All this stuff is going on and we get to see the soul of one person who after culture says you're unworthy, after spiritually he's seen as cursed, after physically walking around with crippled feet, he embodies what most of us embody. The sense of being unworthy. The sense of shame. So I want to I want to leave it there. I want to bring up my friend BJ. BJ, would you welcome BJ with me? <laughs> BJ, uh, we're so glad you're with us. BJ was a speaker at our women's retreat. She is a behavior. Let me turn it on for you. There you go. Behavior health consultant, a certified Daring Way facilitator. The Daring Way is um, uh, Brene Brown. We've talked about uh, daring greatly. And uh, Brene Brown, I'm a huge fan. She's got an amazing TED Talk, a believer, but she, uh, BJ's been trained as a facilitator in the daring way, as well as a certified life and relationship coach. Um, she's dealt with addiction and all sorts of things. I'm just gonna sit down, put this down here so I can sit with you. And I brought her up here because we've been talking actually for a couple of weeks now, maybe even months, about this series and shame and all this stuff. So I thought you could talk to us about some of the things that you talked about with uh, the, the women's retreat, but really talk to us about shame. So what, what, what's the definition that you use for shame? Well, we've got, I think we've got the scripture, yeah, or not scripture, but we've got some, some notes. <laughs> so easily, the intensely painful feeling or experience that I'm flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And a better way to define it is if, there, if people found out there was something about me that would deem me were unworthy of love and belonging. And I think that's a universal feeling that everyone Say that had. one more time, because that's really profound. That feeling of if people knew that one thing about me, they would know I was not worthy of love and belonging. Anyone here struggle with that? Just be real real quick. Mm -hmm. Just that, that fear, it's like this impending doom that they're gonna find out that you're gonna who be I really who am. I really am. I, so good. How does it show up? How have you seen it show up in your work and dealing with people? So it shows up in a lot of different ways. It shows up in scarcity. Um, actually, there's two tapes that shame kind of drives. One is I'm not enough, and one is, um, oh, I always forget this. I don't know if I have it um, up there. Basically, oh, who do you think you are? So stepping into any really difficult situation, those fears that come up for us if, is that feeling of, oh, goodness, do even if I think I'm enough, do they think I'm enough? Right. And that gets us into that anxiety. Yep. And then the other one is, who do you think you are? People that are going to think you don't have a right to be here. You don't yep. have a right to do what you're doing. And we, those are all universal feelings. So it comes out in these ways. Those things come out in these ways with scarcity, comparison. We're really bad about comparing ourselves. This was a topic we talked a lot about at the retreat because women, especially young moms, there's a lot of comparison about how we parent, how we mother, how, whether we breastfeed or don't breastfeed, so many different things. And, mm. and 
it, it, it comes out in different stages, but we're all guilty of it. We look at other people and we compare. And that's a source of judgment. At the end of the day, we're seeing something in them that we either wish we had or we mm. are a, a fault in them that we have, right. like Emma mentioned this morning. And we start judging based on that. Yeah. Or it comes out in scarcity and perfectionism. Scarcity is there's not enough. I didn't get the job turns into I'm never going to get a job. We I'm get not into good that enough fear. For I'm not good enough for the job. Yeah. yeah. Or I don't have enough money to pay rent this much. I'm never going to have the money to pay for my, I'm going to, I'm going to end up in bankruptcy. Yeah. So scarcity is there's not enough. And the perfectionism. um, Can we go, let me just speak on scarcity. So scarcity, I I, I see this all the time. It's, it's, I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I, I don't look cool enough. I don't fit in. It's, we, there, there won't be enough tomorrow. We, we live this story out, don't we, all the time when we, when we live our lives. Literally, I have this conversation all the time with, with my wife. It's, it's fascinating how you can watch God provide for your life. Like, he always shows up, even when you're feeling like, I'm not good enough to, to preach in front of people. And then he shows up over and over again, and then you're, you have to go to a new crowd. For me, this is just my story. And it's like, how, who am I to go and preach to these, this community? And all this time, I've been preaching for this community for seven years, but all of a sudden, as soon as I step out of what becomes comfortable, I, and I'm still doing the same thing I'm doing, I, I don't feel like I'm worthy or good enough to step into this new arena. Anyone else struggle like that? It could be anything. It could be uh, sales jobs. It could be relationships, right? Like we carry this scarcity mindset that hinders the way we live and interact. It causes, it causes fear, and that's fear-based living. Yeah, and for me, it shows up with money. The moment there's, there's not enough money, Mm. I start wanting to micromanage the money. Right. And I start and, and I get into the scarcity of believing there's never going to be any more than what I have right now. Yeah. And yet God has always provided. And it's yes. always in the last moment. Yeah. But he's always provided. Yeah. I've never gone without a meal. I've never slept in my car. Yeah. He always comes through. And I've found that when I don't go to scarcity mm. and I don't get into the fear and try to micromanage it, the solution comes much more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Keep going through these. These are good. So and the perfectionism. Um is that belief, and, and there's a difference between healthy striving, where you just like things done a certain way, which we often call perfectionism. Mm. What true perfectionism is, is if I don't do it that way, people will think there's something wrong with me. Where we identify ourselves with what we do, and right. how well we do it, or how well we perceived, or how we dress, or yes, whatever. That's good. And that should read, I think there's a typo, a mistake feels like a flaw, so I can't take, take responsibility. responsibility. That's so the other good. piece. So you it's stop the, you stop engaging, right? So you stop engaging or you or somebody calls you out and what you hear is there's something wrong with you yep. instead of you just made a mistake. Yep. So because I feel like there's you're attacking me as totally. in my worthiness, I go into shame yep. and I can't say, You're right, I'm yeah. sorry, I made a mistake yeah. and make it right. For me, it's like I, I have this fear of being wrong. Anyone else feel like this? Yeah, okay. So, so I'll argue, I'll, I'll debate my wife. Um, even though I know I'm wrong, I'll just like use my words to go around in circles. And she'll be like, what are you doing? I'm like, okay, I just was afraid to say I was wrong and make a mistake, you know? So that, that's the case for me. It's like whenever, because for me, and this, I'll just speak for myself, to be wrong, somehow along my story, I learned to be wrong is to be bad. And so I'm avoiding that at all costs. Yeah. And this is, so these are ways that shame show up in our life. It shows up through scarcity mindset, shows up through the comparison game, shows up through perfectionism. And uh, what's the next one? I want to say something really quickly yeah. about comparison being the thief of joy. I don't want to skip over no, that because that's really powerful. Because what we do is, with our unworthiness, 
is we won't allow ourselves to feel joy. Yeah. Because we tell ourselves something, we get a, a great promotion at work, and we're going to get to fly to the headquarters totally. to find out about our new job, and we think, oh, the plane's going to crash, because there's just no way this is really going to happen, yeah. because I'm not worthy. And that's called what Brene calls foreboding joy. So Every good. mom who's looked at their child in the crib, and they just feel that overwhelming feeling yes. of love, yes. and then the next thought is of something bad happening to them. And that's us not totally. allowing ourselves to be in joy. Yeah. And of all people, we have so yes. much reason to, to live a life of joyfulness. And the way I see Christians mess this up is they have this poor perspective of what God's like. So they're like, they've had all these, this run of good in their life. And they're like, okay, God's going to pull my card. Something bad's going to come. Anyone else struggle with that? You're like, you get, you're like, I'm going to get a ticket or I'm going to get, like, you just start waiting for something, for the, the thing to drop. You just wait. Yeah. You wait for the shoe to drop. That's what it is. And, uh, okay. Next one. Yes. Okay. Judgment. We kind of touched on that. When we see something in someone else, we basically we're seeing our fault in someone else. Yeah. And it's so much easier to sit in judgment than to acknowledge. And we talked about this at the retreat. And I loved what you said about the fact that the enemy is going to start attacking. We kept speaking into that all weekend mm -hmm. because the moment you mention shame, shame starts showing up. And yes. um, you have to speak into it. So we constantly spoke into the fact that you're going to want to numb out. That's how yeah. we respond to shame. Yes. So we, you're going to have to feel like you have to go to the bathroom really bad. And so and you're going to get it and leave the yep. room. Or you're going to want to avoid in other ways. We, just, we, we start looking at our phones to avoid yes. feelings. And so that's where judgment also mm -hmm. is a way that we start looking around and going, oh, ooh, if I look at that in you, then I don't have to look yeah. at that in me. Yep. And it's just another way of numbing. Yeah, that's good. And then um, the worst thing about shame is that it convinces us that we're alone. And one of the posters that I had in the room had these big, huge four-by-six-foot posters in the room. And one of them right in the middle just said, me too, in quotation marks. So good. Because the most powerful thing that mm. we can do to shame mm. is speak it. And the moment someone raises their hand and says, me too, when mm. we've spoken our shame, yeah. shame can't stay in the yeah. room. It's yeah. gone. So good. That's so good. It's powerful. That's a powerful reality because like even in the past, we've talked about people that have, have struggled with body image issues, depression, anxiety, self-hatred, um, uh, people that have dealt with uh, eating disorders, abortion, or, or divorce, adultery. If we just looked around this room and we started actually responding to those, you would be surprised by how many people in this room are struggling with those things or have at, the, at some point. And that's one of the things that, why, even why we did this series, was just to basically recognize that we're all struggling with the same things. And rather than hiding that fact, just come to an open place where you can learn to be free. Because uh, I love what you said. You, you start seeing it everywhere. It's like whenever you start car shopping, right, you see that car everywhere you go. It's like that's what happens. All of a sudden you start realizing everyone else, wait, you struggle with this. You, you, you see it everywhere. And that's a gift. That's One, it's a gift because it frees you up from feeling that you're isolated alone. And most importantly, it gives you permission to be full to yourself. And that's such good news. Okay, how, does this, how do we respond to shame? So first of all, it's really important to learn what happens to you when shame happens. And we all have, it, it's a visceral limbic response. Yeah. Yeah. So um, imagine you're on the freeway, it's pouring down rain, the car in front of you suddenly stops and the truck next to you jackknives. You know that feeling? 
That's shame. Yeah. That's what shame feels like yeah. literally in the body. It's a, it's a fight, flight, freeze yeah. response. Adrenaline rush. And so yeah. that's how it happens physically. The sooner we recognize that we're in shame, yeah. the sooner we can respond appropriately yeah. to it. Because yeah. um, fear, fear is, is connected to shame. Because that's absolutely. also a fear response, which is natural. Yes. But the shame feeling comes out and we start living in that. Yes. And we, we, we don't just allow that experience to be, oh, I almost crashed. We move into something further and we begin to embody that, right? Well, what happens is we tell ourselves it's fear. We're so used to when our heart pounds that we're anxious or fearful oh, that we don't realize it's shame. A lot of times. And so how many of you have been triggered by shame and then the next thing you do is go off on your kid mm. or one of your employees mm. about something that has nothing to do with anything yeah. because you're in shame. Yeah. And that's why that yeah. limbic response has totally. to be recognized yeah. because we're not fit for human consumption when we're in shame. Yeah. We really, the most important thing we have to do is step back, mm. get grounded again before we respond. So what we do when we don't know how to do that is we either move away, we move towards, or we move against. So imagine yourself, emotionally you're in a corner, and moving away is shrinking and falling down into the corner and covering your face. So we literally disappear from our lives. Mm -hmm. We don't respond to emails, we secret keep, we um, so do all let me kinds say, So we're, we're struggling with something, let's say I'm struggling with something, and you're saying if if I'm experiencing shame, this is how I might respond. These I might respond by mm -hmm. isolating from community, moving away from the responsibilities in life. We just try to hide and avoid contact. And we usually all have one. We have we. You will find yours in one of these three. Okay. So moving away yep. is the secret keeping, the the hiding. Yep. Um, moving towards is people pleasing. I'm going to beg my way out of the corner. I'm going to come toward you, and I'm going to give you all the reasons why you don't have to be mad at me or upset with me. I'm okay. going to make you feel okay so I don't have to feel. Yep. I'm going to take the focus off of That's me. That's definitely me. And then there's moving against. I'll own it. <laughs> uh, moving against is you come out fighting, kicking, screaming, swinging, <laughs> punching, yelling, cussing, uh, whatever. Are you guys and identifying your spouse right now? You're literally <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything right now. Um, right. <laughs> going <laughs> i don't know if my wife's here <laughs> are you here baby alex where are you um moving against we we it's fight so shame with shame yeah. and aggression so good. and that's what i was talking about where we come out mm. and you know all of a sudden we're taking it out on someone yeah. else yeah you know perfect example i can remember one time being at the grocery store my credit card and this was before credit cards got declined for any reason other than you didn't have enough money in the bank we all know now they do that out of fraud reasons mm. and stuff. But mm. back then, if your credit card was declined, there was no money in the bank. Yeah. And that happened a few times. <laughs> yeah. I can remember it happening one time, and my children were with me. Mm. And I made a scene and in mm. my shame, and I got in the car, and I screamed and yelled at them mm. and made it all about them because yeah. of the shame I felt in that mm. moment. So we, we've all done it. Yeah. We all do it. But Usually we have one way that is our most likely way to respond. So this is, is this helpful? It's pretty cool, right? Thank you, Vijay. That's so good. I, I want to just ask you before we move on, what, I mean, we didn't plan on speaking on this, but what have you, uh, as we work towards freedom, I have some stuff um, at the end of the sermon, but what does freedom look like? What does a journey forward moving away from shame look like? I'm just going to put you on the spot. Well, the, the biggest thing to realize is it, we can't, we, we can't um, 
we will always have shame show up in our lives. Yeah. So freedom from it is recognizing that visceral response and yep. knowing you're in it yeah. and knowing how to step out of it long enough to get grounded. So the way you do that is speak it. Um, the most important thing you can do at that point is call a friend. Mm. David's my person. When I'm in a, in a shame spot, I can go to him and say and talk to him about it and get out of that shame. He's yeah. the one person that I can, he's always going to be the first one I call totally. or, or my best friend. I'm going to get on the phone. I'm going to say, did I, was I yeah. wrong or did I make a bad choice yeah. or whatever it was that led me into that shame? Yeah. I'm going to check it with good. someone yeah. who knows me, yeah. who can speak truth into me. Good. That's good. Um, at the end of the day, and this is what we really talked about at the, at the retreat yeah. is when we know who we are in Christ yes. and we're living fully in that, in that authenticity Shame has less hold on us, and no we're power. more likely to recognize it and step out of it. We will always have it. Don't tell yourself that we'll ne- that we'll always be free of, free of shame. It's just a human response. It's a moving target. It'll just it's keep showing up yes, in different places. Yeah, in different ways. And Satan is really—it's one of his favorite tools. Mm. But it's knowing how to respond to it, yeah, so and good. knowing how to recognize it when we're in it. Don't respond immediately. Remove mm. yourself from the situation. Give yourself time to pray and ground and get where you need to be Mm. and then revisit it. And when you know who you are, Mm. you'll know whether it needs to be revisited with that person or if it's just a a story that you've now gone into Mm. because that's what shame does. It takes us into that false story that you're talking about, who we think we are, who we think we are based on what's been said to us, what we tell ourselves, what's happened to us. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've, Many of us have been through really horrible things in our lifetime, mm. and that probably is the one thing that creates a feeling of unworthiness above any other thing. Yeah, if, is those if we traumatic could, events. Yes, those traumatic events. That's really helpful. Thank you, BJ. Can you guys give BJ a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you so much. So good. I love it. When you are rooted in your identity found in Christ, that will keep you from living out of the false narrative. I want to end with a story. We've got some time um, to finish up our talk this morning. I want to finish with um, Mephibosheth's story, and then I'm going to come back to this and give us some practicals, and then we'll, uh, we'll begin to worship and pray. But it says at the end, so he responds in, by saying, what is your servant? Who am I that you should notice a dead dog like me? In other words, revealing that he's living a shame story. And then it goes on to say, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given you, uh, I've given your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Um, You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's grandson of your master will always eat at my table. To eat at the table of a king represents royal family, inheritance, identity. It represents being restored. And it goes on, verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king, commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants to Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. As I was doing the research, I've been planning on doing this talk because I just love the story. It's a powerful story, is it not? Mephibosheth's name in Hebrew means exterminator of shame. (laughs) 
that was an awesome moment. I was like, are you, I called everyone. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm such a nerd right now. This is amazing. Mephibosheth had to learn how to live in his name. And I think the hardest journey for all of us is to learn how to live in the new story, in the better story, the story that Jesus is telling about us. And for so many of us, we come to Jesus with all sorts of excuses, with all sorts of problems, because we've learned to live in the untrue stories that we've told ourselves, that culture has told us, or other people have told us, or things that have been done to us. And so I just wanna invite you to learn now to live in the story of what is ultimately true, in your best story, because Jesus is the best way to live. You will be flourishing if you learn to live in your identity found and rooted in Christ. You with me? So, by way of ending, I want to read another story. It's one of my favorite stories. It's one of the first sermons I ever preached. And it's a story of one woman who was told a very different story about her life, but began to realize what it means for her to be in relationship with God. And you don't have to read this. Um, I'm going to go there. The scripture will be there. But I might invite you to close your eyes as I read this and talk through it, because I think it might have more impact for you. It's Luke 7:36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The story of this woman is she was a sinful woman. That's a polite way of saying that she was a prostitute. And she was known by the town. They knew who she was, that she was a sinful person. And she goes to a Pharisee's house, the most religious kind of person there was in the first century. And she wasn't afraid in this moment as a sinner to show up to a Pharisee's house. And yet she does. She doesn't just go to his house. She first hears that Jesus was going to be there. So she does the unthinkable. She goes to her home, grabs the most expensive thing she owns and brings it, not knowing what most likely she would do with it, to Jesus. And as she stands there on the outside of the table, listening in, because she was allowed to stand outside of the courtyard to get a morsel of wisdom from the spiritual conversation and maybe crumbs off the the table when the, the meal was finished, she begins to cry. And not just cry, she begins to weep. Weep enough to see the tears flow onto Jesus' feet and she thinks, I'm getting his feet wet. And then she does what is even more unthinkable. She lets down her hair, which would be as inappropriate as a woman today taking off her shirt in public and begins to wipe Jesus' feet. And then she pours out this alabaster jar of perfume. Would have been a retirement plan. It would have been the very thing that would keep her from the street once she was done with prostitution, something she would sell in her old age, most likely something that she received from her parents as a dowry as she carried that in to a marriage and what she carried out of the marriage once she either got divorced or her husband died. We don't really know what happened, but then it says when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to him, himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. And what kind of woman she really is, she is a sinner. You see, everyone knew who she was. And now they're beginning to figure out who Jesus is. He's not a holy man. He's not a rabbi. Because 
in that context, you're dead by association. Jesus answered him. Jesus, knowing what he said, knowing what he thinks, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed $50,000, the other $5,000. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he, gave, he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. You have judged correctly. In verse 44, then Jesus, he turned towards the woman. This is a really profound statement in scripture. Jesus sitting at the, ta- the table had not looked at the woman. He turns most likely to behind, stares at the woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course, Simon saw the woman. What do you think he was looking at? Everyone saw the woman. They could smell the woman. They could hear her weeping and sobbing. They could see this inappropriate demonstration of a prostitute letting her hair down on Jesus, this sinner. If you knew who he was, who she was, you should know better, Jesus. Simon, do you see this? No, he didn't see this woman. Jesus was the only one who saw this woman. I came into your house. You did did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't provide for me the, the common courtesy and hospitality of a host, letting my feet be washed before I entered into your home. He says, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered did not stop kissing my feet. She gave me the common courtesy of hospitality of being greeted as a friend. You did not put oil on my head as a sign of respect. She's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins, which you know about past tense, have been forgiven. For she loved much. For her great love has shown this, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, as a reminder, your sins are forgiven. And they begin to say, who is this that even forgives sins? And the reality is, is Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the incarnate son of God and he has the power to forgive sins. And then this is the most powerful line that I invite you to experience this morning. Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, peace. A sinner separated from God. Everyone saw her story. At some point in her life, she experienced the grace of Jesus Christ and brings everything she owns to pour it out as an offering to Jesus. And there she weeps, probably in response for all that Jesus has already done. And Jesus' response is the one, the only one that really sees the story that's being, uh, being told and unfolded in front of everyone. She has a new identity and she gets to go in peace, which is the Hebrew word for shalom, which is the connection that she is in right relationship with God. And she has a right relationship, a restored identity with herself. And she now has right relationship with everyone else. This is the Hebrew word for harmony. And she gets to go now telling a better story. How do we live in the new story? First, I invite you this morning to write down all the untrue words and stories you've been telling yourself. 
all the ways you don't compare, all the ways you feel unworthy, all the ways that you see yourself trying to hide, run, or push against. Write those stories down, those incidents. Name those things in your life that have caused those experiences. Write down the stories that other people have, sh- have spoken over you. In my life, at 14 years old, I decided at 14 years old that I wasn't, my life was not worth living anymore and I, was, I convinced myself of suicide because of what other people said of me. 14. A 14 year old had already determined that the only way to move forward is to end the life that he's been given. Some of you have had those experiences in your life and you need to name those, those experiences. Name those events like Mephibosheth, the day that his dad and grandfather died and the day he became paralyzed. Name those, those people, those experiences. Name what culture, the, the lies that you bought in from culture, trying to compare yourself to celebrities, trying to compare yourself to the people around you. And once you name it, once you write it down, then you, then you release it and you give it to Jesus and you let him speak the new identity over you. Are you with me? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.